I, I think there's been a reawakening out there of an idea that actually we can beat them. And all right, you know, if we didn't beat them first time, we'll beat them bigger next time. I think that's that's the crunch question in many ways, whether the response to the potential betrayal of Brexit will be apathy or anarchy. And I think that's I think a lot of people are asking themselves, um, well, if we can't get what we want through the ballot box... How do we get it? Maybe we can't well, get well, it at well, all. Let, let's call it structured anarchy. Yes, <laughs> structured anarchy. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Nigel Farage. Nigel doesn't really need an introduction. He is one of the best-known political figures in the UK, loved and loathed in equal measure for his dogged Euroscepticism. He has been an MEP for South East England since 1999, which has allowed him to be a thorn in the side of the European Parliament. He was leader of UKIP between 2006 and 2016, and that, of course, includes the period of the 2015 general election when UKIP got its largest ever electoral backing, almost 4 million votes. Nigel is also a broadcaster, a businessman, vice chairman of Leave Means Leave, and a member of a new party called the Brexit Party, which aims to uphold the vote for Brexit in the face of a political class that is doing everything within its power to overthrow it. It's fair to say Nigel divides opinion. Some on the left refer to him as an extremist, even as far right, while others argue that he has transformed British politics perhaps more than any other contemporary politician. Simon Heffer says Nigel is one of the most important British politicians of the entire post-war era. Nigel, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm going to correct you, though. I'm going okay, to start do. off. Let's get confrontational early on. <laughs> no, the, um, the biggest level of support ever for UKIP was, in fact, in 2014. And that was in the European elections, when we got over 4.5 million votes, uh, despite a spoiler party being allowed to look like us and get another 300,000. Yes. And that was the election in 2014 that we actually won. You know, UKIP came first in those elections. And I think just sometimes in the Westminster bubble, that fact gets very conveniently that's a good fact to push in there at the very beginning. Well, I want to start off actually with a pretty simple question, which is I can't remember any time in my lifetime when democracy has been under as great assault as it is right now. We had the vote for Brexit, 17.4 million people supported it, the largest vote in the history of this nation. The entire political class, it often feels like, is against it and wants to dilute it or weaken it or destroy it entirely. That goes for the Tories and also for Labour, which has now come out in favour of a second referendum. So the question I want to kick off with, is Brexit going to happen? Is it possible that this huge vote won't happen? This breach of trust that you talked about it there is actually worse than you said. It wasn't just the fact that 17.4 million people voted, despite being told by everybody and every global leader that plagues of black locusts would descend on our land, they still voted Brexit. And then, the next year, 85% of people in a general election voted for parties whose manifestos were absolutely clear they were going to take us out of the European Union. And then, 498 members of Parliament, carried by a majority of 384, voted for Article 50, which said... We leave two years to the, to the date that we trigger it with or without a deal. So whichever way you look at this, 
promises that were made to us that the result will be implemented. But even the votes of MPs themselves uh, are now being effectively disregarded. I, I have to say this to you. I... I left the mainstream parties back in the early 90s. I mean, I was a member of the Conservative Party. I joined in 1978. I thought the Thatcher agenda... Yeah, the medicine didn't taste very nice, but it was absolutely necessary. It modernised the country. It, it made us a place worthy of investment. I gave up on the whole show under John Major. I couldn't see what the point was of any of it if we were actually going to be governed from somewhere else. So I've been, in a sense, disenchanted with it all for a long time. And yet, I have to be honest with you, even I thought... When Article 50 passed by that majority, I thought, that's it. Mm. We've done it. It is going to happen. Right now, we are in a very complicated and difficult position. Because on the one hand, the way we leave the European Union is to back Mrs May's deal. But on the other hand, we're leaving one treaty for another treaty, mm. which is arguably worse than the one we're leaving. So I... Is it going to happen? I, when I, you know... Here we are a week before the crucial votes in Parliament. I'll give you my best guesstimate of where we are. I think there's a 20% chance we leave on WTO terms. The reason being, even though Parliament doesn't want it, statute law is there. And if this Prime Minister wants her legacy to be that she delivered rather than she failed and effectively was forced to stand down over the course of a summer, then there's just, there is still that chance that we leave on WTO terms. And I'm very very encouraged by the work that's been going on for the last few weeks. You know, we're seeing the CFTC come to the city and everything signed up there. And even Mark Carney, the awful Mark Carney, says actually most of the things have been put in place and now his projection of the amount by which the economy would collapse has halved. So I'd put that 20%. I would put Mrs May's deal going through at about 30%. Uh, there will be some Labour MPs who are tempted to say to their constituents they're honouring the vote. I'm talking about the Midlands, the North, South Wales, areas like that. Also, the bribe's helpful, isn't it? Mm, you know, absolutely. You know, you know 1.6 billion quid. <laughs> so you say to your constituents, look, I've honoured what you voted for, ha-ha, <laughs> uh, and there's money coming into, mm. whether it's Stoke or whatever, or Wigan or whatever it is. Um, so there, there will be some Labour MPs who vote for it. The real question is, what do the ERG do? Um, and... It seems to me that Geoffrey Cox, uh, the Attorney General, is getting nothing substantial at all in Brussels in terms of the backstop. The one thing, the one thing that makes this deal go through is if members of the ERG decide that the unity of the Conservative Party matters more than delivering the Brexit result and what's right in their hearts mm. for the country. But I still, I'd put it at 30%. And 50%. To me, the favourite, and, and funny enough, I've been saying this since last August, is extension of Article 50, and that is what I think will happen. I wanted to actually to ask you about the ERG, because I think uh, what you've, how you've just described the political class is how a lot of people feel. A lot of people never had much faith in the political class, mm. you would refer to them as liars and charlatans. You hear those comments around the country over the past few years, past couple of decades, in fact. But I think even ordinary people are shocked at how yes. duplicitous the political class yes. has been since Brexit. And I think you mentioned that you were a member... You were in the Conservative Party, kind of lost faith mm. under Major, as I'm sure many people did. That's one of the most shocking things, the fact that even the Tory party, sections of which have always been fairly Eurosceptical, can't see... It seems incapable of pushing through this vote, even down to the ERG, which I think... Who I think have turned out to be a little more cowardly 
than people thought they might Well, be. you see, I mean, you said that people view them as liars and charlatans, and that's bad enough. I'll tell you what's worse than that. Careerists. Mm. It's even worse, because actually what it means is you've got people who, and let's be frank, you know, most people in politics in this country are not, are not worth much out there on Main Street, you know? <laughs> I mean, no, come on, let's be honest about it. These, these are not talented people who've given up careers in something to go into politics. These are people who, ever since they did PPE at Oxford, have wanted to be members of Parliament. I mean, that covers... Of course, there are exceptions to that, but, but so many people, uh, and not just in the Conservative Party either, have gone through that kind of route. So to them, and, you know, and they've got mortgages and young kids or whatever it is, and to them, the absolutely most important thing is getting re-elected next time round. And that, I think, is the biggest problem that we've got. Mm. Quite how we change the landscape of British politics uh, and get people in who are doing it for a real sense of purpose and get people in who've risen to the top, whether it's of their trade union or whether it's they've done well in the army or in business or whatever it is. I'm just not quite sure. But that, I think, is the real problem we face. And I, and I you know, I, one or two of the ERG, I, I've listened to them talking. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, OK, matey. Uh, you know, you really wouldn't want to do something that might threaten your reselection prospects. So, so yes, and I, and I think there is this astonishing disconnect that exists between Westminster and I always say the world outside the M25, but actually it's not true. It's only a few central London boroughs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right. you, I mean, you know, get out of Welling or whatever, <laughs> yeah, you find Absolutely. it's a very different place. But what interests me is the political class were shocked at Brexit because Brexit exposed the disconnect. And I would say the disconnect now is far greater than it was at the time yeah. of the Brexit yeah. referendum. Uh, I think it's actually out there. What I'm getting uh, from many people is, is literally revulsion. Mm -hmm. They cannot... And that, by the way, not just coming from hardcore leavers. That's actually coming from a lot of people who voted Remain because well, I've met them, Nigel, I've got a mortgage, a new business, I was worried about instability. But even they can see that unless we're to become a banana republic, unless this place... You know that gave us the mother of parliaments. Unless <laughs> this place is to be totally devalued, this has to be honoured. I completely agree that the, the the disconnect is larger now than it was in June two thousand and sixteen. Yeah. Primarily because people have seen the assault on democracy that has taken place, and they now know that all those focus groups we've had for years, and all those pleas with us to engage in in democracy, and all those desperate. Um, pleased by politicians, you know, vote, 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 get involved and so on, was completely phony. And as soon as we say something that they find disagreeable, they do everything within their power to prevent it from happening. So one question I had for you, in fact, was to what extent do you think we are potentially witnessing not just the overthrow of Brexit, which is an incredibly important vote, but also the unravelling of the democratic era itself? And I, I cast my mind back to... Um, last year, when everyone in Parliament was cheering the Representation of the People Act and, and the suffragettes and the 100th anniversary mm. of mm. women getting the vote for mm. the first time, and working-class men in, as well, in fact, yeah. now uh, they are snubbing the largest vote in, in history, which includes, of course, the votes of 8 million women. So do you think there's a danger we're entering an era in which the political class turns against well, democracy course, itself. Of course, the post-democratic age. I mean, a magnificent phrase that I heard Peter Mandelson uttering about 20 years ago. And let's be honest, you know, the great battle that is going on here, America, across Europe, and is being debated all over the free world, the great debate is what is the way forward in terms of how we're governed? Is it the globalist approach, which is big, 
supranational structures, which in the main are run by people who can't be voted in and therefore can't be voted out? Or is it the nation state or nationalism, if you want to use that word? That is the big debate that is going on everywhere. And if you really think about it and go right back to the 1950s, the origins of the European Union, which is, I would argue, the epicentre of the globalist dream, it's why the Hillary Clintons and others are completely in love with it, the origins of it, if you, if you read Monet back in the 1950s, he makes the argument that democracy is a very inconvenient way of running a country because, you know, the ship of state goes in that direction for four years and then it might go in a different direction for four years. So better, he thought with no sense of irony, given the Soviets and their five-year plans that they put in under Stalin. Um, better, he thought, to make sure that the people who really control how our lives are led are the intellectual elites, who, of course, know oh so much better than we do. And so the whole European project was based on that from day one. I mean, yeah, we have a European parliament, but I think Jimmy Goldsmith called it a false moustache. Um, <laughs> our leaders have willfully been taking, to, taking us to a place where democracy is devalued. Now, the question that fascinates me in this country right now, and, and you're quite right, you know, to identify the level of disconnect, the growing well of anger, the question is how are we as a country going to deal with this and where are we going to be in five or ten years' time? Are we going to submit? Are we going to submit and go on being governed by these appalling people, Juncker, I mean... He's bad enough before lunch, let alone afterwards. Um, you know, Tusk, I mean, he's ghastly people. Um, or are we actually, is Brexit actually going to be the first yeah. sort of almost neo-revolutionary step back to where we need to be? Now, I get people telling me, oh, well, Nigel, you know, if this gets stopped and, if you know, Brexit, uh, Brexit delayed equals Brexit betrayed. Yeah, okay, I, get, I get the narrative. I completely understand it. I agree with it because it shows a total failure of our leaders in every sense. But are we going to become yellow jackets? Are we going to take to the streets and start tearing up cobblestones and chucking them through bank windows? Well, the answer is we're not French. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't actually think we will get large-scale civil disorder. I just don't think we're made that way. What worries me, are, and I get this on my OEC show, and I get this in letters, there's a growing number of people saying we're never ever going to vote again. Mm. You know, I met a chap in Cornwall and he said to me, Nigel, I haven't voted for 35 years. But that referendum, that means so much to us and our fishing communities here in Cornwall. I, I thought, well, the hell with it. I'm going to go and do it. He said, if this isn't delivered, I'm never voting for any, I'll bleep the word out, a person ever again. And that's the worry. The worry is, do we, do we just give up? Do we just stop engaging with the process? Or, or are we going to be able to provide a vehicle outside of the established two parties that offers people hope, offers people a way of getting back at this and getting what they want without either resorting to violence or total abstentionism. And I, I think my faith in the British people over this issue is very strong because it seems to me what's happened to us. I mean, you give a chocolate bar to a six-year-old kid, right? You put a chocolate bar in front of a six-year-old kid and then take it away again. They will scream and shout and hoot and holler because that expectation hasn't been fulfilled. And I think Brexit's like that. I think these voters who were saying if there was a second referendum, they live in Sunderland or wherever they are. If there was a second referendum, I wouldn't bother to vote again. I just think we have to inspire them mm. and make them realise that actually Brexit was the first step of us actually getting back a more accountable form 
of democratic control. So I'm actually, I have to tell you, despite all of this, and despite my predictions of delay and everything, I'm actually pretty bullish about this. Mm. I think I, I think there's been a reawakening out there of an idea that actually we can beat them. And all right, you know, if we didn't beat them first time, we'll beat them bigger next time. I think that's that's the crunch question in many ways, whether the response to the potential betrayal of Brexit will be apathy or anarchy. And I think that's mm. I think a lot of people are asking themselves, um, well, if we can't get what we want through the ballot box. How do we get it? Maybe we can't well, get well, it at all. Well, let, let's call it structured anarchy. Yes, structured anarchy. <laughs> let's go for some structured anarchy. But, no, but I mean that's and, and that's one of the things, Brendan, that I've been doing. You know, as I said to you, I thought with Article Fifty we were there. I realised last July and August, post checkers, we weren't there. Um, I was really shocked that the Conservative Party did not bring down the Prime Minister over that. Mm. It showed me how gutless and spineless. Same as Maastricht, you know, it, it really was very disappointing. So what I've been doing, what I've been doing is trying to set up structures and get involved in things that will give people somewhere they can channel their feelings. And so that's why, I, I mean, I, I joined the Leave Means Leave group last August, which, you know, been run by John Longworth and Richard Tice since the referendum, but I joined it. We've gone out around the country and we've showed, actually... We can get left and right and business figures and people from across the spectrum together on platforms. So I've been involved in that. And, 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 and if worse did come to the worst and, and, they were, and they forced us to fight again, we would have a very credible vehicle you know, run by people without personal political ambition. And that was what messed up the Leave side last time, yeah. is that the personal ambition of those who wanted to become prime minister and those who wanted nice jobs in number 10 got in the way, I think, of a unified campaign. So I've been doing that. But the other thing I've done is um, I've been fairly instrumental in the establishment of the Brexit party. Now, that obviously, for me, you know, member of UKIP for 26 years, the better part of my life, let almost the whole of my adult life, you know, I've been involved with UKIP. And all UKIP had to do, all it had to do was just keep the ship steady. Mm. And their moment would have been now, in a quite remarkable way, in my opinion. You know, th These are the most propitious circumstances for UKIP ever. Sadly, they've gone off in the wrong direction. They've allowed thugs in, etc. And, and that just puts a glass ceiling mm. on what they can achieve. So I'm, I'm, I, you know, I am behind the creation of the Brexit party. We are now a registered, legitimate political party. And I am saying to members of parliament, uh, you know, the last time that sort of period of 2012 to 2016 uh, that I was very much up at the front in British politics. You hated me being there. Well, I tell you what, if you don't deliver a proper Brexit, you'll have me back. to... You, yeah, I'll be back. And, and, and so that's my pledge. You know, my pledge is uh, that if we get a delay, uh, we will be contesting European elections on May the 23rd, and I'll be back and I'll give it everything I've got. I want to ask you a couple of questions about the Brexit party in a moment, but first sure. I want to ask you about the Labour Party, because Ooh. listening to you talk about the globalist agenda and the birth of this kind of European monstrosity, which explicitly weakens uh, uh, democracy in all nations, you remind me of Tony Benn. And, and one of the things that I often find quite depressing about today is the death of left-wing Euroscepticism. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's worth reminding people that when Corbyn first became leader 
of the Labour Party. Everyone freaked out. But actually, you made some favourable comments. And you made the comment in particular that Corbyn has traditionally been very Eurosceptic. He was kind of Tony yeah. Benn's yeah. bad carrier. Yeah, I, said, and I, I, said he, I said he was nearly a proper chap. That's right, <laughs> nearly a proper chap. So I think the cowardice of the Tory party is one thing, but I think there are a huge number of voters out there, particularly in the north of England, in uh, Wales, other parts of the country, yeah. who look at Labour, which is now going for a second referendum, and will be shocked. Well, Islington Labour and Tommy Atkins Labour are a long, long way apart. I remember Tony Benn. I remember Tony Benn giving me a bit of a rollicking once. We'd been on a panel and I'd said something. And he said to me in the green room afterwards, he said, just because I'm a Republican doesn't mean I'm not a patriot. I am a patriot. And I said, Mr. Benn, I will never, ever assert anything. I mean, he really... And I felt actually quite embarrassed that I might have said something that, 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 that inferred that he wasn't patriot. It was a question about the Queen. Mm. And, I mean, the other guy that I knew better than Ben um, and shared quite a lot of platforms with was Peter Shaw. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, goodness me, couldn't people in the old days actually speak? Yes. They didn't need notes or teleprompters. <laughs> you know, they knew their subject and they cared. And these were intensely patriotic people, as were their voters. And I think, you know, the Labour Party has been hijacked by two phenomena, really. One, of course, is momentum and the hard left and the nastiness and some of the anti-Semitism and the abuse and all of that, uh, which I've suffered firsthand <laughs> quite a lot of. Um, but, the, but, the, but the other hijack of the Labour Party is they all live in Islington. I mean, look at the front bench. Look at them all. You know, Emily Thornbury and Sir Keir Starmer, and yeah. they, they, it's, it's this sort of David Lammies, or it's all this North London elite. They see themselves as internationalists, yeah. but actually they're anti-democrats. And that gap between them and millions of Labour voters is absolutely huge. So I think the future of the left and centre left of, of British politics is a deeply fractious one. Yeah. And who's to say the centre of the, the the future of the centre right could be the same? You know, yeah. we, we we could be heading here for fragmentation, and I think maybe not now, but I think part of this desire by people to have representatives who are a bit more like them, I would say the general election after next we will have a form of proportional representation because that's what the country now wants. I think uh, absolutely correct that they present themselves as internationalists, but actually mm. there's something very different. It always yeah. reminds me of another old Labour person, Barbara Castle, yep. who did a wonderful speech at Oxford University in, uh, during the, the, the first referendum on EC um, membership where she said, this is not internationalism, this is Euro jingoism. And it, it was a very powerful well reminder. Well ahead of its time. Yeah, they... But I wanted to ask you, on so on... The thing that Labour is proposing, uh, outrageously in my view, which is the second the yeah. second referendum. So y- you're accused of having flip-flopped on a second referendum. But actually, no, d- I, when I read your comments on this, I absolutely understood where you're coming from. So, so what you were su- suggesting, I think, is that the attack on democracy has been so profound and the undermining of public opinion has been so thorough that possibly... Going back to the people and allowing them to say one more time, screw you, we want Brexit, might be a good thing to do. Yeah. But in principle, a second referendum look, look, is a bad idea. It's an appalling idea. But this is about mindset, right? Most of my colleagues who, who I've, across the parties, who I've fought in the referendum campaign with, whenever they were faced with Brexit could be delayed, there could be a second referendum, said, no, 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 fingers it is, no, 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 everything's going to be absolutely fine, the Prime Minister is committed to delivering Brexit. And I was saying, hang on a second... Mm-hmm. Let's just mentally get ourselves ready in case this goes wrong. Mm. What I was yeah. doing there was getting myself mentally prepared. If this happens, 
we have to. There's no point saying we're all going to stay at home, provided the question's half reasonable. Yeah. You know, well, we, we could come on to that, but there's, there's no point in doing that. And actually, don't think the other side aren't mobilising. Don't think that Malik Brown with Soros's money uh, and Alistair Campbell. Don't think they're not getting ready to fight a second referendum. Lord Adonis, you, you know, I mean, you know, they are. So, so it was one side made that mental conversion that it could go horribly wrong and therefore we had to start getting structures in place. So, as I say, I'm not flip-flopping on it, but if it comes, we need to be ready. I think the question is key here because yes. if the question were to be between May's deal and staying in, mm. that's a real problem because then effectively what that means is that the option to leave has been taken off the agenda. So yes. the thing that the largest number of voters in history voted for would no longer be an option. Be an and then the argument for a boycott becomes pretty serious. Yeah, I think if that was the question, I'd, I'd yeah. just go to the pub for two months. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I just... <laughs> not much excuse needed, really, anyway. But no, no, I mean, I really... That would be an outrage. It can't happen. Yeah. It can't happen. But if it were, if it was a repeat of the first referendum, vote, uh, Lee versus <laughs> well, Remain, you'd, okay. you'd argue Here, for engagement. Here's my thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But here's my thinking. My thinking is, into extension, you get the argument for a second referendum being revved up again. All right. But actually, the European elections could kill that in its tracks. Because if what you saw in the European elections you know, was a dramatic shift in British politics. I think maybe we could put it back in its box. But you know what? If we have to do it again, we'll win it again. We'll win it by a bigger margin. But to, to win it again by a bigger margin and then to hand it back to the very people that betrayed it in the, fir- in, in the first place <laughs> strikes me as being a little bit of a problem. I want to ask you briefly, uh, this is a huge question which can't really be answered briefly, but let's have a go. The question of why people voted for Brexit, because this is one of the most controversial questions of our time in many mm. ways. Uh, if you listen to Ramona's, it's because we're all racist and stupid and, and low information and all this kind of nonsense. Mm. If you look at the Lord Ashcroft polls, which were done on the actual day of the referendum, the, the number one reason was because people think British laws should be made in Britain under the purview of the British people. So that suggests the vote was really for democracy. Obviously, immigration was in the mix too. But in your view, as someone who was central to that campaign in the run-up to June 2016, what's your sense of one of the, of the key drivers to that? I vote? remember a day in early 2004, we were voting in the European Parliament in Strasbourg on the accession of eight former communist countries. That then became ten in subsequent years. It was pretty obvious that in many cases, these countries had not yet made the full transition to full... Western democracies, and that part of them joining a few weeks later would be total free movement of people. And I said at the time, not only will this be bad for us, it'll be very bad for those countries too. They will lose the best and brightest. And you look at, I mean, Lithuania, nearly 25% of its population have left. All the young doctors have left. All the young lawyers have left. This overnight transition to free movement, this expansion of the European empire. And I realised on that day that if I was able to make immigration as a subject synonymous with membership of the European Union, the whole argument would be in a different place. And that, I think, is what has happened. Mm. Millions of people in this country saw fundamental change in their communities, um, massive negative change when it came to getting their kids into the local primary school, getting a GP appointment, whatever it might be. And they started to ask themselves a question, why is this happening? And if, if, if there was one thing I did successfully over that period of time was to make people realise that it was one and the same thing. 
So look, the answer is people voted Brexit because we want to be an independent country. And mm. independent countries, amongst other things, control their own borders. We, I mean, of course, without the immigration question, we would never have got this over the line. But it's actually of itself a subset yes. of that bigger question. I've always thought the, the immigration issue was, was tied to the question of democracy because people are, if you look at um, surveys, for example, people don't hate immigrants. No. They're not anti-immigration. No, no, but the question is whether it's something that we decide or something that's foisted well, on us in terms of the EU. And, of course, this is the next issue that will come back. Because at the moment, at the moment, a lot of the posh Tories who were in the, in the Leave campaign... Oh, isn't it marvellous that no longer is immigration an issue in British politics? Well, that's because the public think it's been dealt with. It hasn't been dealt with. And I think, and I'll predict here and now, that immigration will be back as the number one issue in British politics within the course of the next three or four years. One question I wanted to ask you, just a quick one, is um, if you regret the breaking point poster. Because one thing that I I think is very interesting about your comments on immigration over the past few years, which people often overlook you've been quite critical of Enoch Powell in terms of the violence of his language yeah. and some of the terms yeah. that he used, yeah. which you argue kind of made it very difficult to talk about immigration for a long Almost period impossible of time. Mm. To talk. I mean, Powell was a brilliant man, uh, and I was privileged to meet him on several occasions, and I think a lot of his writing and his speaking on a wide range of issues, you know, from how you, from, from how you defeat inflation through to sovereignty. I think he had a lot to say and a lot to give. That speech was a huge mistake. A huge political mistake, uh, and oddly, an incredibly clever man, but politically a bit naive. Mm. And I think yes, the violence of a language did mean it was tough to talk about these things. Look, the 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 whole point of the Breaking Point poster uh, was number one, it wasn't an image; it was a photograph, and that's very important to make that point. And what did it say? It said the EU has failed us all, because what we were increasingly seeing on our news headlines, was outrage in Germany and Sweden and elsewhere. The Hungarians saying no. Mm. That, that, that this decision just to unconditionally open up the doors that Mrs Merkel made was a massive political mistake. Uh, and I think people could see that if hordes are coming into Europe, it's only a couple of years away when they get European passports, five years or whatever it may be. David Blunkett said to me afterwards, after the referendum, he said, Mrs Merkel did you a huge favour. Right. And I, think, and I think he was right. Do I regret the poster? I regret Joe Cox's murder. So this is what happened. That poster I launched um, on the Thursday morning, so with a week to go before the referendum. It was the day after the fishing flotilla on the Thames where Geldof had behaved like such a fool. I mean, it was the biggest win for us ever. It was fantastic. Yeah. There's multimillionaire Bob Geldof on a, on a, on a gin palace shouting at working-class fishermen from South End. I mean, the imagery, it, it summed up the whole Brexit campaign in many ways. I launched that the next morning. I had full-page colour ads in five national newspapers. Uh, I had poster trucks going out all over the country. I had big digi boards in Birmingham, in Leeds. And, I mean, this was my big spend of the referendum campaign. And, you know, by lunchtime that day, I got the usual criticism from the usual suspects. Do we have to go banging on about this? But, but actually nothing out of the blue. Joe Cox deeply regrettably was murdered and by the next morning I was responsible mm. and that is what happened and you know for those next two or three days I really did have to stand my ground mm. because life was made very George Osborne saying you know Nigel wants to take us back to Nazi Germany and all the rest of it so uh, no and and do you know something a year before the referendum I sat down with my with my campaign advisor and he said to me, if the weekend before the referendum 
we're defending the loss of three million jobs we've lost. If we're talking about nationality and culture, we'll win. And I remember that Tuesday morning, two days to go, coming into the office, and, I, and the stuff that was being written about me, I, mean, I couldn't even read it. We all agreed in the office over a coffee that morning at Upstate. Well, at least they're talking about immigration. And all the way through that campaign, whenever we talked about immigration, we were in their half of the pitch, and they didn't really have any answers, other than to say we were beastly people for even discussing it. I think the truth of it is, I think that poster helped us to get over the line. I thought one of the ugliest things in the referendum campaign was actually the way in which the horrific murder of Joe Cox was pinned on not only yourself, but mm. pretty much anyone who was uh, vociferously pro-Brexit, which mm. I thought was just such a cheap way to try to demonise what was actually an incredibly yes. popular public sentiment. I was obviously horrified it had happened, uh, but deeply thoughtful as to what the effect on the referendum would be. I don't think, as a result of the Joe Cox murder, that a single person changed their mind. But I do think, as a result of the Joe Cox murder, the momentum that the Leave campaign... And you could feel it. There was a buzz. And it just arrested it for a period. And I suspect without it, we might have won by more. I mean, no-one knows. But that, mm. that's my feeling, mm. that it did kind of stilt the, moment, the momentum that was definitely going in Leave direction. Yeah. I want to ask you about conspiracy theories because it seems to me that another way in which in this current moment that the, the vote for Brexit is being attacked and undermined and demonised is through this suggestion that there is this vast conspiracy involving you, Vladimir Putin, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg, I think. You know, it's coming from The Observer in particular who yeah. seem to employ a lot of conspiracy theorists. Um, so are you part of a global conspiracy to destroy well, British democracy? Well, I wish I was, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I wish I'd been behind everything, Trump, you name it, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm just not as good as that. Look, the whole thing's bloody ridiculous. I mean, I'll tell you what it is, though. It's very interesting. The, the establishment in London, Brussels and Washington, D.C., still two and a half years on, cannot get it into their head that they suffered these twin losses in 2016. Mm. And they, they, still, they, they actually believe that for us to have done this, we must have cheated in some way, uh, we must have lied in some way, or best of the lot, this is the one I like, because Paul McKenna got involved a bit in the campaign. We must have hypnotised <laughs> the, the, the population. They haven't accepted that defeat. You, yeah. You've only got to listen to Blair, Major, any of them. They have not accepted yeah. those results. That's why they're fighting so hard against them. Um, and they're trying to come up with whatever they can to discredit us. They're doing it here with endless stories about Russia, uh, hooky money, whatever it may be. And, of course, if you cross the pond to DC, mm. it's exactly the same campaign that's being fought against Donald Trump. It is astonishing. And I... I have to say what I find despicable are members of parliament here using parliamentary privilege to accuse people who were yeah. involved in the Leave campaign of criminality. You know, directly, potentially damaging the jobs of people working in this country. Yeah. Uh, and I find that absolutely despicable. But it shows you what we've sunk to. And I think the, the, what they don't realise, or maybe they do realise, is that the people they're really attacking are ordinary voters. Because mm. the presumption is that we're so dim, we're so stupid, we're so suggestible, yeah. that uh, you know, a few memes on Facebook or a few kind of puppeteering moves by Vladimir Putin could make us vote for something we shouldn't have voted for. But you know something? I mean, you know, just look at Macron yesterday. You know, Macron making highly abusive comments about the Eurosceptic movement, about the Brexit vote. I, I don't know who's advising these people. I don't know who advises Alistair Campbell and others 
to give the impression that Brexit voters are thick mm. and pig ignorant. Uh, I don't know who's advising them. I'm, I'm happy to pay them to keep on doing it because <laughs> actually the more you insult people, yeah, the stronger they become absolutely. in their opinion. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about, well, two things. Why you left UKIP and and what you think you can do with the Brexit party. So the first thing is on UKIP. You've said that it's become too beholden to far-right thugs, street mm. activism. It's become something different to, to, the, to what it was when you were in charge and, and how you envisioned it. So uh, obviously the involvement of Tommy Robinson and a few yeah. others. So how do you define the problem with UKIP right now? And do you think it's a lost cause? One of the things I did do, and it was illiberal, anti-democratic, and perhaps wrong on, on, on a level of some individuals, but it was the right thing to do. You know, there are people who, people aged 18 joined the National Front for six weeks or the BNP for six weeks and realised they made a mistake. And, it was, and on those people it was rough. But what I did in 2006 is made sure that nobody who'd ever, ever been a member of any extreme organisation could join UKIP let alone be a candidate or a branch, could even join UKIP. We forbade former EDL, former BMP, former hard-left groups from even joining the party. And I did that because I wanted us to make conversation about tough issues, issues that everybody else would rather brush under the carpet. I knew exactly what mud they would throw back at us. I wanted to make sure it didn't stick. Mm. And I think what's happened... Um, over the last 18 months or so, is those types have been let back in. And and I'm afraid there is a sort of criminal edge to this. Far too many of these people have strings of convictions. This just does not work in British politics or for any mm. real Western politics. And UKIP will continue to exist. Of course it will. It's pretty much now taken the place that the BNP had. Mm five or ten years ago, but I would suggest that history tells you in this country, whether it's the National Front, the British National Party, Oswald Mosley, or whatever it is, that the glass ceiling on that vote is probably, I don't know, five to 700,000. Mm. That's about as much as you'll get on that ticket. Um, so I, and I think what you could have done is to waste a phenomenal opportunity. Uh, and I was very sorry to, to reach the conclusion that my journey with them had finished. Very sorry indeed. I see it as a terrible waste. And I think it's a great shame because one of the, the fascinating thing about UKIP for so long is that it became a lightning rod for ordinary people, including working class people's yeah. dissatisfaction with technocracy and the European Union and the political class more yeah. broadly, which is why it got four million votes and then won the European elections, yeah. as you reminded yeah. us. And so to see it become a kind of lightning rod for something a bit darker... Is, well, I think, it, a well, shame it's heartbreaking for me. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I helped build this thing, and now they're smashing it to pieces. 
So the final question I want to ask you is about leave means leave, which yeah. I think is, as you say, has had the involvement of people on the right and on the left. Yep. It's got you, it's got Kate Hoey, all sorts yep. of people in the mix. And I think it's been actually incredibly inspiring. It's had huge rallies, which often don't get as much media coverage as smaller get togethers do by other political organisations. <laughs> and then there's the Brexit party. So I guess what I want to ask you is, will the Brexit party be a one issue organization and i don't mean that as a criticism is that actually what we need now a, a focus on pushing brexit through because we recognize that democracy itself hinges we on that the brexit thing. party to fight these european elections we will fight these european elections on one simple word trust you know you were told the result will be honored uh, this is now being betrayed the very fact the very fact that brexit's been delayed if that's where we get to is because of a collective lack of will of our parliamentarians and indeed our leader to carry out the wishes of the people despite all of those promises and that's what fundamentally the Brexit party will be about. It'll be about the single most important issue that I think we've ever seen mm. certainly for 350 years in this country in terms of how we're governed, who we are, whether 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 effectively we're even a nation at all, but even more important than that it's not about the issue, it's about the political class. This is this is going to be people versus the politicians. There is no other way of looking at it. Nigel Farage, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.